Okay, well, my name is Sarah Hill. I am a, an associate professor of popular music at the University of Oxford. I'm from California originally, and I was trained as a classical musicologist, a classical musician, um, but through a number of kind of accidents along the road, I ended up studying popular music in the Welsh language for my PhD thesis, and I've been a popologist ever since. <laughs> that is fantastic. So, well, so what led you to the book? What was the inspiration for the book? You know, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I figured you would ask me that. And yeah. I really can't remember what the initial spark was, but I remember, you know, sort of conversations on, you know, Facebook, whatever, social media with other um, pop scholar friends of mine um, talking about, you know, the occasional song, you know, what something about, you know, what's interesting about this song or somebody would, you know, we were talking about what, whatever it was. It sort of led me to think about a collection of, essays on one hit wonders because it seemed like the kind of thing that would make a lot of sense to you know as like a shortcut to understanding the history of popular music so it's not about you know in the 60s you had psychedelia and then you had disco and then you had punk and then you had whatever it's you know all these weird little blips on the on the timeline i mean why was that song popular then you know what it's contextualizing it and the rest of you know what else was going on in the radio it's it's kind of it seems like a, a, an obvious thing to write about, but nobody had, so we just decided to do it ourselves. Well, right, and there's there's so many different examples of different ways in which, you know, some, sometimes it seems to be pushing style, sometimes it's trailing style, sometimes it's completely left field. So yeah, uh, yeah. tell us about some of the more surprising and interesting things you learned as the book came together. Well, I have to say that um, the the contributors for the to the book aren't just, you know, English and American. I mean, there's we have contributors from um, everywhere between Wellington and Oslo. So there's there's quite a there's quite a range yeah. of perspectives, and we're not just about songs that were written in the English language. So um, the things that were surprising to me, we were trying to keep it between say 1960 and 2020. But the first the first chapter is um, on the song "The Flying Saucer" by Buchanan and Goodman. Which mm-hmm. is not a song that that rang any bells with me at all. Mm-hmm. It's from 1956, and it's you know the earliest, maybe the earliest example of sampling. Um, and Paul Carr, who wrote that chapter, really, really kind of gave me a, a really interesting history lesson along the way because it's all about litigation and it's about how you use samples and what that does to the reputation of the person who recorded the original song in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's a, and I have to say it's a song that hasn't really aged very well mm-hmm. <laughs> because the references that it's using are from from its time. So these are songs yes. they're, they're utilizing songs from 1955-56, and it's what we would call sort of we have postmodern kind of re reimagining of you know the story of you know the War of the Worlds or whatever. I mean it's it's a it's a it fits into a the sort of sci-fi fascination of the late 50s in a really clear way. But it's a bit of music history that I just didn't know anything about. So I, that I found really a, a really interesting way to start the, to start the uh, collection. There are other, you know, other tracks along the way that are really, really familiar, maybe overly familiar to some people. 
there was a chapter on a hot child in the city. Now that's a song yeah. I remember from, you know, I was a preteen when it came out. And it never really occurred to me <laughs> at the time to feel in any way weird about it. But stepping, stepping back, you know, to, the, to this point in my life, and I have a daughter the same age that I was when I first heard the song, it's just yeah. inconceivable to me that that kind of thing would actually be on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> well. um, so, you know, just the, the opportunity to rethink songs that are familiar or to sort of fill in the blank of popular music history with songs that you weren't familiar with before. I mean, it's a, it was all such an interesting exercise to put it together. Yeah, yeah. So I learned an awful lot along the way, yeah. I'm wondering if, if, it, if that song, the Flying Saucer song, made you think about the history of postmodernism differently. Um... I don't, I don't know about that. I think it's the, just the pilfering from everything around you. Right. So, you know, it's the collage, it's the bricolage thing, it's, it's throwing, you know, everything into a, into a pot, stirring it up and making, making, um, little fragments of existing material mean something totally different. Yeah. So it's decontextualizing, it's collaging, um, so it's, it's keeping things rather superficial, uh, in, in a way that kind of reflects the way that I think about postmodernism, which is not not something I think about every day, but it's it's something that um, that certainly comes into a lot of or used to come into a lot of hip hop scholarship at the very beginning. Right, right. There's music that that's just little bits and pieces from other things, or an album like Beck's Odelay, which is just you know a little bit of everything. Right. There's no one overriding style or theme to the to the album. Blur's Park Life, same thing. It's just every song is a different style. So it, 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 it doesn't cohere in a way that we expect music to cohere, and that makes it postmodern. I mean, in, in that sort of sense is what I'm thinking, postmodernism. Yeah, and then the other direction to take this is the how how vexed the lawyers uh, are when they're taking this stuff down and where people are filing lawsuits around this stuff and what stage we're at now versus, I mean, that song is kind of, will sound prehistoric to us, but nowadays yeah. we get some incredibly intricate and filtered and, you know, smoky, fogged up references from the actual digital sample of a previous record. And how much of that is legal, is fair use, is a reference, is, is a piece of the art and how much is stealing and how much of that is substantially different from what composers do all the time. Like what Mahler does with Beethoven, right? It's just an incredibly exactly, yeah. complicated situation and the law is always playing catch-up, but I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that issue. Well, um, I think you, you you really summed it up well. I mean, I'm thinking about the first time I saw the liner notes to an album that listed all of the, you know, that, that, that cited all of the references, you know, cited all of the yeah. tracks that which, they sampled. Which record was that? Do you remember? I don't know. Maybe was it Fear of a Black Planet? It was maybe one of the Public Enemy yeah. albums. Or The Avalanches, Since I Left You. Maybe maybe that was is the one that's kind of more extreme than anything else. Because every single millisecond of that album, of The Avalanches album, is taken from something else. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, you know, kind of trying to understand where the authorial voice is, like where right. the, you know, where the person behind the, behind the compilation of sounds actually exists. And that's a really right. interesting, a really interesting problem. Um, I, I certainly have 
friends and colleagues who deal a lot more with issues of litigation and fair use and all the rest of it. And it's a minefield, but I'm so glad I don't have to walk through um, as much as I do. I mean, because I, the, the stuff that I do in my, in my regular life is just, it's mostly about popular music history. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I deal with, I I did a book on the sixties and I'm sort of doing work on progressive rock in the seventies. So it's, it's, I don't have to deal with those kinds of issues, or I didn't have to deal with those kinds of issues in, in the work I did on the 60s. So it's, you know, it's, my, it's kind of mind-blowing in a way, the the amount of contortion that a person has to do, has to go through just in order to come up with the final product, the final creative product that they have in mind. Um and so, yeah, better them than me. <laughs> well, no, I agree, and it's just so uh, it's so complicated. And but I I do find that the the issue does reflect uh, people's views towards the these larger issues about the author and the voice, and yeah. and their attitudes about about postmodernism, about bric-a-brac and collage. Because um, I'm I don't know I I think my it's my personality. I'm pretty glass half full type, but. Uh, I tend to just sort of embrace it all and think, think well of it all, but there's a there's a strain of intellectual thought that is very anti-postmodern and thinks it's all ridiculous and surfacy and completely substance-free and that's a real really like they're harsh. I find. Do you find that? <laughs> I think yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I certainly had uh, professors along the way who were very dismissive of postmodern theory. Um, the, the idea of the postmodern condition, but I, it, it really helps to make sense of some of the music that came out of, say, the 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s, 2000s, when, you know, history was there for the taking. So you could, you could take what you needed and make something new out of existing material. I find I find that process really interesting as a you know the end result of that process really interesting, um, oh, yeah. and if using something like postmodern theory makes it easy to understand it or to articulate that, then you know I don't see any problem with it. Um, it's it's not a theory that I think it has the same sort of sexiness to it now. I don't think that it's that it's used in the same way now that it that it was when I when I first went to grad school. Um, mm. well, but you I probably find it useful you, occasionally. You probably know more about that than I do, but I, t- I try to ask all my guests in my cultural criticism class, do you think postmodernism is exhausted? And some of them will just say, oh, of, of course, it's been exhausted forever. Like, it was never worth, was never worthwhile. Yeah. And some people just say, oh, no, it's just infinite. Of course it's not. It'll never be exhausted. I mean, the range of opinions you get on this stuff is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it shows how powerful a tool it is, isn't it? Because, because, um, People have very strong opinions about it one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for so example, I, for example, I talked about my my work in Welsh language popular music. I found the idea of postmodernism really useful because the issue of language and um, sort of the border crossings around language from Welsh to English. Um, there's a, a certain fluidity that that came into Welsh popular music around the time that um, stylistically it was expanding. So there was this, you know, there was hip-hop suddenly in Welsh, which didn't exist before, and there was dance music in Welsh and, you know, electronic oh. music. So all the, so the, the stylistic 
stuff that happened happened really, really quickly. Um, and because all of this music was sung in the Welsh language, it could go very naturally on Welsh medium radio because that's what it existed for. Right. So right. you would have radio, you know, a single radio station that catered to the Welsh language that would play, you know, skiffle next to, you know, boy band next to um, rap next to, you know, just any any number of genres would just sit side by side. Yeah. They don't have anything in common apart from the language. So the whole idea of Welsh popular music radio was just this weird blast of postmodernism oh. because it oh. doesn't make any sense, oh, you know, musically. So, yeah. Yes, and and disorienting in a completely different a different way. I mean, well, I think my favorite, one of my favorite examples that I use is uh, Oprah Haza in the Eric B. and Rakim rap song. Mm-hmm. Did you know this song, um, Paid in Full? I'm trying to think. Okay. Uh, oh, I'll send it to you. But it samples this Israeli singer, Oprah Haza, who's actually a Likud member, and it just tilts it completely on, the, on its side and uses it above this really fantastic, funky beat that, where they're rapping and doing all this stuff, and it's like this. This is just the most radical. Like you could not get more radical than taking this very conservative Israeli pop star and turn, putting her into a, you know, a beatbox street culture uh, early rap song. And it's just yeah. it's got this wonderful sound effect all the way through. So that sort of disorientation. I just love the idea of taking the Welsh language and how it disorients the history of pop music. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's. it's it. it, it, it I, I, I mean, I don't know if it if it's still the same now. If you would still get the same sense of it, but if you've never listened to <laughs> to, to Welsh radio, and why would you? Um, it can be a, a a pretty a pretty radical experience. Um, yeah. So oh, well, I can yeah, I can go on and on about you know <laughs> about Welsh music yeah. for a long time. What kind of queries did you send out? Did you invite people to pitch you? Did you did you have definite ideas? How did the book take shape? Um, it was literally a Facebook post. Um, who would be interested in reading or contributing to a volume on What It Wonders? And, I don't know, 30, 35 people in, in pop studies wrote back and said, me, 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 me. Yeah. And so we just decided, you know, we have to, to agree what we mean by What It Wonders. So it would have to be, you know, a hit that was, a song that was a hit in the British charts or the English or the American charts. Between, right. you know, 1960 and 2010, whatever. Um, and they were going to be short chapters, so nothing is really more than about 3,000 words. So like the length of an undergraduate essay. Um, they could write about any song they wanted, um, and they could take any approach to that song that they wanted to take. So it just really kind of turned yeah. into this beautiful <laughs> sort of... Yeah. Nobody... There, there was maybe one song, maybe two songs that more than one person wanted to write about. There was a little bit of haggling over, um, was it Sugar Sugar? Yeah. Maybe it was one of them that more than one person wanted to write about. More than one person wanted to write about Top Top Um There were a couple of chapters that didn't get written in the end, so I'll just save them for volume two. Um, oh, but good. No, it, just, oh, it was really organic. It was just a really organic and a very open-ended, freewheeling. It's a really, it was so much fun to work, to work on because, yeah. 
the ideas that people had about the songs they wanted to write about were so different and so unique and so, you know, fulfilling to read that right. well, that's that's what impressed me because I've read, you know, I've read Dave Marsh's book on Louis Louis and I thought, oh, of course there's a chapter in Louis Louis here. And I learned an incredible amount of new stuff from this, from really? this chapter okay. on Louis Louis. And there's already a whole book devoted to it. You know, <laughs> wonderful. One, there, that yeah. song is such an interesting portal um, into the nature of rock and roll, the history of rock and roll, all the threads that, that lead to and from it, uh, including the simultaneity of uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, vastly underrated group from the 60s, uh, doing the song at about the same time. And so why does one take off and the other is like a moderate hit? I just love that story. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's a great sort of it's a great snapshot of a very particular period and a very particular place. I mean, yes, you never really think of Portland <laughs> as being, no. you know, the, the the place that spawned it all. But so yeah, so so putting it in that kind of context, I think is is great. Um, and you're right. I mean, some of these songs were recorded by more than one band. I mean, um, uh, "Hooked on a Feeling" was was a hit for other for other musicians, not just Blue Swede. So mm -hmm. why was it that the Blue Swede version is the one that we still right. know, you know, 50 years later? Right. So all of those, all of those stories are, you know, worth kind of taking a second and thinking about a little bit more. The Norman Greenbaum chapter, I found fascinating. I did not know that guy yeah. from Medford, which is right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jewish guy from Medford. I love it. And the whole history of jug bands and stuff is in there. Yeah, it's a great piece, that one. Um, Phil um, Auslander, who, who wrote the chapter, just took a, he, he sort of, he, he got in touch with me, you know, off, off list when we were talking about, when we were putting all the, the, the ideas for the book together. And he said, look, I want to sort of take a kind of a personal approach to this because I can't not mention my own, you know, connection with, you know, with the idea of Norman Greenbaum. <laughs> and right. like, no, it's absolutely fine to write from, you know, it, 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 it feels unnatural to academics sometimes to write from a personal perspective, but it was absolutely yeah. appropriate for that, for that chapter. And I think he did a, a fantastic job of it. And you're right, yeah. there's so much detail about the jug band stuff. I mean, who would, who would put that in the same, in the same right. orbit? Right. But if you know about right. 60s music, you would. And it makes me – now, I'm going to have to read your book, but I'm sure there's a lot of that in your San Francisco book because we know that Jerry Garcia was very big on the jug band thing. And, uh, it's, yeah. it's not a slice of the music – it's not a slice of history that I'm not familiar with, but it made all kinds of sense once I saw it. Sorry, there's also the bit with, like, the Love and Spoonful. So you sort of – you know, you use the other jug band references to sort of come to a, to an understanding of what – oh, yeah, that was that – that was what that year sounded like. Right. So – so it's not just about, you know, the sort of the, the folk musicians or the people who became the Grateful Dead being interested in, in jug bands. It's like the actual sound of the jug bands. So it wasn't just Love and Spoonful. It was also Mungo Jerry and, you know, these this kind of weird throwback stuff that was also psychedelic in its own way. Is Mungo Jerry in your book? It, there they aren't. So I'm hoping that somebody will come <laughs> I keep talking uh, about Volume 2. I have no plans for Volume 2. Because, uh, summertime, summertime is 1970, yeah. 71? I, that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely a, a song that needs to get written about, I think. I, I've been very curious ever since I did my own work on it, um, 
tracing the, how the history of rock and roll, the UK makes sense of rock history versus the way Americans do. Um, mm-hmm. And I found it very pronounced when I was researching the Beatles. I'm wondering if you came across some of that. Well, I mean, obviously, as a Welsh scholar, you would, you've already tasted those waters. Well, sure, yeah. Um, and also being, you know, working in England, you know, living in Britain all these all these years, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, it is really clear. Um, anytime you dip into the history of a genre in Britain, you're sort of dealing with a different set of circumstances. So you're dealing in large part with, you know, with music that had been imported um, by you know, servicemen into the different, you know, the different ports of Britain after the world, the Second World War and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Different series of, uh, there's a different network of clubs and performance venues. There was a different kind of light entertainment that existed here that didn't exist in the States. All of those yeah. things, you know, are, are true, but it's also kind of more importantly true that Britain was much more aware, you know, white British musicians were much more aware in the 60s and 70s of, of black American music than white Americans were. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but but then it, it 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 makes it difficult to listen to you know bl- uh, British blues rock for example or some of the the kind of white soul singers in Britain because there's such a such a separation between them and the lived reality of the Black Americans who made the music in the first place. So there's a really interesting you know interesting tension and interesting connection um, that's often difficult to to hear if all you're listening to is you know, the hits from any given year. So it's absolutely something that, that I'm mindful of when I'm thinking about music history or when I'm talking about music history or writing about it. That the, the circumstances that gave rise to some of this music were so different in Britain than they were in, England, in, in America. It's always worth keeping that in the front of your mind. Well, yeah, it's also really hard to teach, right? Because <laughs> It is, it is. <laughs> It is. Uh, um, so this is where these two subjects intertwine, and maybe we can get into that a little bit now. But so I teach the the four main themes of rock and roll: uh, race, class, gender, generation. Yeah. Okay. That's and, a really good way to, to take it apart. Yeah. Well, those are just four. I tell them those are four main themes. Most of rock and roll are going to touch on some of those. There's a lot of overlap. But in Britain, what you you know once you finish illustrating how that works in 50s rock and roll with Elvis Presley so he like he rings the bell four times right but mm-hmm. when you get to the Beatles the race component really falls away even uh, though they were singing Motown songs right, they were singing exactly. you know the the class thing comes into play so much more in Britain like in such stark relief in Britain in British music than it does in, much more stark relief in British music I think than it does in American music. I mean, you think of, of Elvis as, you know, a southern hick, right? But we don't really necessarily talk about class. We're talking about, you know, a very sort of a, we, we, we um, use terminology that sort of erases class in some ways. It's implicit, but it doesn't talk, we don't talk about working class or middle class or, you know, any of that. So, in but in, over in Britain, the Beatles, Maybe, you know, maybe they weren't strictly working class, but they were northern. So the fact that right. they came from somewhere other than London was really important. The fact that they sang, they sang in their native accents was really important. So the, the markers of difference, I think, um, 
are much easier to hear in British music of a certain kind than it yeah. is in American music. But then you get yeah. into like, you know, the Rolling Stones, they I don't I, you can't place Mick Jagger's accent anywhere on the map. Um because yeah. he's trying too hard to sound like, you know, Otis Redding or whoever. Um Led Zeppelin, you can't really place Englishness in Robert Plant's singing voice, but it's absolutely there. Um so there's there the so place and accent and class are so very, very important to British popular music of, you know, the late 50s and, and onward, um, that it's it's a different set of circumstances that makes sense of the music, I think, than, than the sort of things that you'd be talking about in American music at the same time. Yes, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I agree how much class drops away, because when you have a key piece of Elvis's identity early on is that he's a truck driver. Yeah. Right? Okay. That, that's both classed and gendered. So you don't have female truck drivers in the day. But when he's identified as a truck driver, and when Jackie Gleason calls him a rube, you know, <laughs> what you're talking right? Yeah. What you're talking about is someone who is illiterate, and you know by that we mean musically illiterate. He's not a trained musician, right? So yeah. there is this white trash aspect. It's not. I would say it's overt. I would say that the the entertainment establishment looks on him as like he's threatening a because he's popular and b because he threatens to upend this whole educated class. And so yeah. that the the class thing is really pretty strong there. Uh, they, uh, yeah, guys, it, actually, yeah. They call him a, a Marlon Brando with a guitar, which means right. He's a primitive. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the white trash thing that is different in so many ways to sort of working class Englishness. So yeah. there's um the, so they're, they're really kind of subtle. We are talking about working class demographic, right? So Elvis represents a working class demographic of a certain kind of a certain period. But yeah. we never really use those terms in the same way that we do in Britain, I think. That's kind of it's a, it's a I mean, maybe I'm just splitting hairs. Um, no, I think it's uh, I think it's all mixed up with uh, how we we're really in class denial in America. We pretend there's no class, yeah. but everyone, yeah. but we all know that there are some severe class divisions. Um, yeah, and you, and and you use Britain, the term white trash, and you know just what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but in Britain, the class division is very stark and very it's overt, and it's it's a part of everyday life. It's part of the language that you speak. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and the, with the Beatles, it gets very, very complicated, obviously, because Lennon is the only guy with indoor plumbing, and they're, <laughs> gra they're grammar school boys, which means they are getting, they are going to university, so that puts yeah. them uh, on the path towards being in upper class, but being northern, <laughs> it's just delicious, it's just delicious, but they don't, but American, a lot of that stuff doesn't go, I mean, it took me years to figure out that the scene in Hard Day's Night with the with the man in the bowler hat is a first class cabin, and that he thinks yeah. they, they should yeah. never be in that first class cabin. But I did not, as yeah. an American, I I did not understand that layer of meaning that was in there. Isn't there something also about um, Gre Paul's grandfather in Hard Day's Night? No, he's very clean. Yes, <laughs> so yes, but he, he's a TV star, right? And that was one of the catchphrases yeah. of his TV show, of which okay. really very interestingly transcends. I mean, most most Americans never got that identification, 
but they stuck him in that movie because he was a popular TV show. It was to sell tickets. Yeah. Uh, and I always loved Lester Bang's remark about how, you know, the weird thing about this movie is that the grandfather is really the most subversive element in the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it, I, gosh, you know, I watched A Hard Day's Night for the first time in, you know, decades. Some years ago, uh, I was showing it to an undergraduate class. I hadn't, so I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it's really possible to be too familiar with the, with the Beatles. They're just over familiar, right? But, you know, I took a step back and watched it, and those are some glorious songs. It's just, you forget how great the songs oh. are sometimes. Oh. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to remember because they're so familiar how good they were, but, you know. Right. Just, well, this is such a wonderful film. Well, yeah, and I, it, it's a, uh, I encourage my students to watch it, and I always tell them to turn on the captions because they'll, you'll miss half of it. Mostly because that accent is so thick that a lot of it goes by, but the captions it really helps. But the music is the whole. I mean, that, that's the that's their leverage. They're they're able to behave so subversively and carefree and completely like who gives a shit about these stupid dancers with their feathered costumes? We're busy. We're busy rewriting the whole script, right? And we don't yeah, have to. Have, yeah. We don't have to. Dir- confront you directly right and the director is in their face about being late and stuff and they're just like who cares what he thinks we have the material and they when yeah. they do the material it's absolutely transcendent it's like who wants to go back to that older stuff this is the stuff so yeah. it's yeah no it's a it's a and it's a miraculous piece too because it should never have happened it shouldn't you know it was it was way too low a budget it was a complete accident all of that yeah, it's also let's just let's just hop on the bandwagon while they last you know Sure, it's it's so much fun to meet you over the phone. Thanks so much for um, sharing your time with me. And um, thank you. okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.